This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Scripture reading this morning is John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. It can be found on page 901 of your Pew Bibles. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Sermon. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we ask you that you would, as we open the word this morning, would you be pleased to speak to us? God, would you be pleased in and through your word to meet us, enliven our hearts, show us yourself? Would you give us a spirit of grace, a spirit of grace upon the speaking of the word, upon the hearing of the word? Would you give a spirit of revelation? Illuminate the eyes of our understanding, God, that we would have understanding that is alive before you. Would you do what only you can do? Would you take of the things that belong to you by your spirit and make them known to us? Jesus, we honor you this morning and we ask that you would be present among us. We know that you are present among us and we ask for more expressions of your presence among us. As we look at your word, as we gaze upon you, would you show us yourself? In your name we ask, amen. Okay, so we're in the third week of our series in the Upper Room Discourse, which is John chapters 14 to 17. Uh, looking at these words that Jesus gave to his disciples, to uh, those who had walked with him in a particularly close way for the duration of his ministry. And on the night prior to his death, as he's about to be handed over to be crucified, he gathers his disciples close and he speaks to them these words that are meant to help sustain and stabilize their hearts as they're, as they're about to walk through this remarkably uh, difficult situation. Jesus, in these words, exhorts his followers. We heard again, read this morning, uh, the beginning place of this sermon is, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
as you're getting ready to walk into these circumstances, and as, it, as you uh, walk through these, the uncertainty and the difficulty of the time when I depart from you, don't let your hearts be weighed down or unresting with trouble, but rather to believe in him, believe in God. And he promises them, we've, we've talked about week after week, look, if you look with me at verse 27 in chapter 14, that he is, he is to give them peace. He will dispense and de- deposit peace on their hearts as he departs, but they are to not let their hearts be troubled. The means that Jesus gave to them or the, the way that he provided for them and he exhorts them after giving them this command is to believe. And we've, we've looked at that again and again. Last week we talked uh, a good bit about Paul's similar exhortation in Philippians chapter four, where Paul says, don't let your heart be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. As you walk through the difficulties and the trials of this world, don't let your heart be overcome with anxiety or fear or despair or shame as you face these difficult situations. Rather, come before the Lord with a spirit of prayer and supplication, offering up to him with a grateful spirit or a spirit of thanksgiving, supplication, and the peace of God will guard your hearts there. Then last week we looked at uh, three essential truths that Jesus lays out for his disciples in verses two and three. These three essential truths that he begins with as uh, particular truths that are meant to stabilize and secure them in confidence and, and provide steadiness to their hearts. They are that he is, uh, that the father has a house for them with many rooms, meaning there's plenty of room in the eternal dwelling for those who are mine. He stabilizes them and secures them in eternity. The second thing he says is, I'm going to go to make a way for you to participate in the father's house. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to lay my life down and prepare a place Uh, for you in my father's house. And then the last one he says is, though I'm departing, though I'm going to leave, I will come again for you. And when I come again for you, I will gather you up to myself. And in that time, you will be with me where I am forever. And Jesus gives these truths. And then we're going to pick up today in verses four to seven, as Jesus has outlined these realities. So look with me if you're following along at Roman numeral two. Thomas begins uh, this this section in hearing the way that Jesus talks about going to his father's house, preparing a place. I'm going to come back and receive you to myself and we'll be together uh, always. Jesus ends uh, in verse four by saying, you know where I'm going and you know the way to get there. You, You actually know the place I'm going to, he's just talked about it, the Father's house, eternity, this, this heavenly dwelling where God exists. And he says, and you know the way. This is remarkable, right? They're, they're sitting there hearing these words, uh, and Thomas voices this concern almost immediately, right? And, and it, in some ways, embodies the concern that the rest of the disciples have. He raises his hand and he goes... Uh, I don't know the way, right? (laughs) I'm not sure the way. You said, I know where you're going and I know the way to get there. 
Uh, am I the only guy that does it another way? He's, he's that guy in the class that doesn't want to like uh, say the dumb question, but he says it anyway. So he jumps in and he says, hey, I don't know the way, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and, and I want us to feel the gravity of this, not because of Thomas's um, like dullness or his resistance, but rather the, the reality that Thomas and the disciples still, on the night that Jesus is about to be betrayed over, they have these deep like presumptions and presuppositions about what Jesus was meant to do. You see, Jesus had talked to them for quite some time about the necessity of him going up to Jerusalem, being handed over to the authorities, being given over to death in order that he might provide a way of salvation. And he's said this again and again and again, and yet they do not have eyes to see what Jesus is saying that he is called to do, what's in front of him. Because he had been given this assignment, this task, this mission to go and be the sacrifice for sin, the atoning sacrifice before God, and yet they still could not come to grips with the fact that the Messiah had to die, right? So they had these preconceived notions where they were unwilling to let God's truth confront and reshape and reorganize their beliefs. Put a pin in that. It really matters in what Jesus is about to say in response to Thomas's question. So we see that Jesus has told them again and again that he's got to go up to Jerusalem. He has to die. He has to give his life over uh, in order to make a way of salvation. But Thomas pipes in and goes, I, I don't know what you're talking about still. I still don't know the way. So in response to this, Thomas asks for clarification to the destination and the means to arrive at the destination. I do think there's a sincerity to this question, although it's misguided and uh, steeped in blindness. The disciples continue to be confused as to the nature of Jesus's departure, his mission, what it means, yet they're here still with him in sincerity. So how do we know? Look at verse six. So uh, not verse six, I'm sorry, verse five. Thomas comes in and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We, we're not really sure where you're going. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? Though he's just told him. And I love that Jesus, in his wonderful compassion, his glorious mercy, does not snap at Thomas. He doesn't go, hey, Thomas, I literally just told you where I'm going. I'm going to the Father's house. I'm going to make a way for you. I am going to do this. He does not bark at him. He comes back at him with real sincerity, real compassion, and he begins to show him yet again what he is going to do. And he gives this statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. 
And so what we're gonna do this morning is literally just look at each of those and talk about Jesus's claim to be the sole and exclusive way to experience life with God. Jesus makes an unbelievable claim here. I want you to just stop for a second and think about the audacity of this claim, right? Like don't let our familiarity with it and our ability to kind of like roll it off the tongue undermine how audacious this claim is. You have a man looking at a group of people and saying to them, I am the way to God. I am the truth of God. I am the life of God. No one can come to the Father. No one can come to God unless they come through me. This is remarkable. I just want us to hear this because there's a lot of people around the world right now that talk about Jesus as like a way or they talk about him as like a good teacher. Maybe some of his moral principles are good. Here's the problem. You gotta deal with a teacher on their own terms, right? So Jesus doesn't say, hey, take some of my teachings, assume them into your life, if they resonate with you and what you already believe about things, if they make you a little bit better, all those kind of things, he literally looks at people and says, the only way that you can have life with God is if you come through me. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's literally standing before them saying, I'm God incarnate, and there is no other way to God except through me. This is the most exclusive sole claim that someone could make. And we're going to stop and dig into it because it really matters. In our day of pluralistic uh, ways of thinking about the world and our, our day of like self-help and this therapeutic, I'm going to find my truth, my way, my this. Jesus stands with a word of profound confrontation to all of those endeavors and a profound invitation. Come to me. Through me, you can have life. So we're just going to look at those this morning. Jesus begins by stating that he is the way. This is the sixth I am statement in the Gospel of John. If you read through the Gospel of John, there are these remarkable statements where Jesus says, I am this, I am the door, I am the life, I am the bread. Like he has these statements that are meant to call us into looking at him and understanding who he is declaring himself to be. He shows through these statements, he understands himself to be God. And he is inviting us into relationship with him. He declares here that he is the sole and exclusive way to approach the Father. He is the unique access point through which the power of salvation and the power of grace can be experienced. This comes through faith in him alone. 
It's through the cross of Jesus that he prepares the way. We've talked about this extensively, but he, he says it's through his death that he provides the way. He removes every obstacle that stood in the way of relating to the Father. By becoming sin, Jesus becomes a sufficient sacrifice for sin so that we might experience the life of God. So I want to, what is Jesus getting at here, right? What is Jesus laying out? So throughout the scriptures, the idea of God's way had to do with the means by which we related to God, right? It was, it was the way that we relate to him, how we stand in covenant relationship with him. Throughout the Old Testament, the law or God's word had often been called the way, right? The way that God's people related to him or walked before him. Look with me at some of these scriptures. Deuteronomy 5, 33. Moses tells the people, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Right, so this idea of walking in a way or walking in accordance with the, the means to relate to God. And he says here, do this by walking in accordance with what God has commanded you so that you might live and it might go well with you. Psalm 67, you get the psalmists praying over and over again that God would show his way or teach his way. May God be gracious to us, bless us, make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth. Make me to know your ways, Psalm 25. Teach me your ways, Psalm 86. So throughout the Old Testament, the word of God, the law of God was the way to walk in relationship with God. Now, John does something remarkable in his gospel related to Jesus as the word, right? So if the word of God is the way to be in relationship with God, what we see in John's gospel is that the word of God, the living word of God, the eternal word of God actually became a man dwelt among us, walked this earth, and now the living word of God is saying it's no longer through the law that you walk in the way of God. I am the word of God. I am the way. I am the one through whom you stand before God. This is what John does at the beginning. Look with me at John 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus says this to the Pharisees in John chapter five, you search out the scriptures, you think in them is eternal life. They bear witness about me. They were meant to make you come to me because Jesus would say, I am the word of life. I am the word of God made known to you. John 10, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus again saying he's now reorienting the way of God in and through him alone. Here he does it by a different image. He says, the one that, uh, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door climbs in another way, that man is a thief. But Jesus says, truly, truly, 
I am the door. I am the way, the sole access point to the Lord, to God himself. So Jesus, this is important. I want us to catch this. Jesus does not say, I came to show you a way or teach you a way. Rather, he says to his disciples, I am the way. I am the way. This again speaks of the exclusive nature of Christ's claim. The only way to come to the Father is through the person of Jesus Christ because of his work. It's through faith in him that we're joined to him and only then are we called to follow him. Now, what I mean by that is this. What we do not need to believe is this, that my imitation of Jesus is the way to God, right? Jesus didn't come and say, I'm walking in this way, you walk in this way, and then you can be pleasing to God. What he said is, I am the way. I'm the only one that can walk the way. I'm the only one that can do uh, what I've been called to do, which is to pay the price for sin, to live the life that was perfect before God, to die a death that was pleasing to him in payment for your death that you deserved. No one else can do that. You can't walk that way. Come to me. Now, being joined to Jesus, we can come to God and be conformed, and then we are called to follow him. But our following him is not the way by which we gain access to God's presence. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's important. He didn't say, hey, follow this way and you'll be pleasing to God. He says, join yourself to me the way. Come through me and you have access to God. Then he calls us to follow him. Pick up your cross. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Follow in my way. We see this again in the book of Acts. Peter also declares that Jesus is the exclusive way to experience salvation. It's through the name of Jesus that we experience God's power to be saved. Peter stands up and says in the book of Acts, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected. The builders uh, rejected the stone, which now is the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the testimony of the scriptures. There is no other way to come to God except through Jesus Christ. Simple faith in him, laying our lives down before him, coming to him and receiving from him the free gift of mercy and salvation that he alone could purchase. There is no other way. And I want us to hold that because we live in a world, like I said earlier, that is trying to convince you there are a lot of ways to God. You can find your own way. You can 
pick and choose ways. You can take from here or take from there or take from there, and they all kind of get to the same place. The problem is Jesus, if you are going to follow him, he makes it solely clear that he alone is the way to God. He does not permit a pick and choose. He doesn't say, hey, take some of the things that I teach, take some of the things that that other guy teaches or this other place teaches, see if it's what you already desire, put it together and sort of just become a better person or become a better whatever version of yourself. He says, none of that. You can't be a better version of yourself. You can't find a way to God unless it is through the broken body of Jesus Christ. That is the new and living way the author of Hebrews tells us. So Jesus begins by defining to Thomas, where are you going? We don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. And then he moves on and makes two more unbelievable statements that we have to grapple with together. The second statement serves as a further explanation of why Jesus is the only way. Not only is Jesus Christ the sole and exclusive access point to the presence of the Father because of his perfect work, he is the only way to God because he himself is truth. Jesus is the incarnate son of God. Jesus is the full embodiment of ultimate truth, which belongs to God alone. Now, I want to stop there again. We live in a world that has become obsessed with subjective understandings of truth, right? That is, hey, tell your truth. Right? Just the highest goal of life is for you to tell your truth. The problem is that truth exists objectively outside of you. It is what God defines as true. God, the creator, gets to say, this is true and this is not true. We don't get to come and say, Uh, I feel like this is true, so I'm going to hold on to that and make sense of the world based on my perceptions or my experience or my desires. The truth of God confronts us and demands that we conform to it. Not we get to come in and go, I like that part. Oh yeah, yeah, that part really, really resonates with me. But that one, not so much. We don't get to do that. We have to take all of it and let it confront us as we, by his grace, seek to come up under his authority and his rule. So Jesus stands in front of his people and says, I am the truth. The sole objective truth of ultimate reality is me, is me. I want you to see a couple things here again in John's gospel. 
In the beginning was the word, we heard this earlier, and the word was with God, and the word was God, meaning Jesus is God. The true light, verse 9 of chapter 1, which gives light to everyone, he was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What that is saying is, Jesus is the ultimate truth. The only truth that is known is because God has revealed it. The, any true light in the world was revealed by the word, is what that's saying. We see in John 8, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world, meaning there's no other way to see. What does light do? Right? It provides the opportunity by which to see. That's what light does. Jesus says, I am the light, meaning you can't see anything outside of me. Unless you walk in my light, uh, you live in darkness. But those that follow me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. Okay, so Jesus is the truth because he is God. The Christian understanding of God's triune person illuminates the truth of the scripture, that Jesus Christ is the second person of the Godhead incarnate, okay? That's a fancy way of saying God exists eternally. The, the biblical understanding of God is that God exists eternally as one being, one essence, existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus is the incarnation or the made flesh of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. That's what we see all throughout the scripture. Because of this, Jesus fully reveals God always, always. His person, his character, his thoughts, all of these things. Look at John 1 again, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt with us. We have seen his glory. The glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that's, this is talking about the second person now, who is at the father's side, he has made him known. So what we see here is no one's ever seen God. Jesus took on flesh. And what we're going to see here in a second is he says, if you see me, you've seen God because he is God. Jesus is standing up saying, I am the truth. You want to know what is true. You want to know what is real. You want to know what God is like, what God says, what God does, his character, his attributes. Look no further than Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at. Hebrews 1 does the same thing, or I'm sorry, John 17, what Jesus does here is he is praying and he says a similar thing. He says, he's praying to his father and he says, I have made your name known, meaning your character, your essence, who you are, and I will continue to make it known. Meaning in his life, he fully embodied the truth of God. He is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1. Top of page four, if you're following along. 
Now, again, it's not that Jesus simply says true things or teaches us the truth. Those are both true statements. He does say true things. Everything he says is true. Every statement he makes is true. But he himself is the truth. He is the standard of what is true because he is God. Okay? Every aspect of the incarnation demonstrates for us and puts on display what God is like. When was the last time that you took something in the Gospels? I, I want to invite you to do this regularly. Take something in the Gospels. Uh, one of the stories, right? When Jesus heals somebody or Jesus draws near to somebody or speaks to someone or uh, has, has an encounter with someone. Slowly look at it. Read through it a couple times and then slowly look at it with the full awareness that you are looking at God. Right? When's the last time you watched Jesus uh, with the woman at the well and said, what does this show me about God? What does this show me about God? Little words. Ask God to like make them jump off the page at you. The fact that I love in John's gospel when he talks about Jesus going through Samaria, he said he had to go through Samaria. What does that say about God? Right? What does that teach you about God? Jesus says, I am the truth, meaning I am God in the flesh. Everything I do is true and right and good and beautiful. What does it show you about God? Look at him. Look at who he is. What does it say when Jesus will go up to a leper and put his hands on him? and say, be clean. You're looking at God, is what Jesus says. He does this in a manner that we can see and understand and experience. I think this is one of my favorite things about the incarnation, is God makes himself known in a way that we can understand and see and experience. It's what John says in 1 John. Hey, we got to touch and see and experience all of these things. The eternal word of life took skin on and we got to touch him and we got to hear the timbre of his voice. This is your God. He took this on himself so that he could communicate to you. This is what I'm like. This is who I am. This is how I Live. This is my character, my nature. I have two quotes for you there uh, from theologians. I would really encourage you to go read them and spend some time with them. I want you to, I'm going to read a little of the first one. Anyone contemplating the life of Jesus needs to be newly and more deeply aware every day that something impossible, something scandalous has occurred. God in his absolute being has resolved to manifest himself in a human life. I love his little aside. And that God has the power to do that. How unbelievable is this? To stop and look at Jesus, the truth, is to see God. See God. 
Jesus declares this as we go on in verses seven to nine or seven and nine of John 14. If you knew me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know, you do know him and you have seen him. Then he says it one more time clearly after Philip stands up and goes, wait, 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 no, just show us the father. He, he asks again, show, just show us the father. That would be good for us. That's all we need. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. He is the truth. And he, that means he gets to call the shots. He's the truth. We come and we look at him and we submit all of our life up under his truth. We don't get to bring our preferences, our desires of what it should be, our subjective experience, and let that try to override it or him. We come to him and say, you are the truth. Show me God and conform me to that truth. Then he concludes by saying, he said he's the way, he is the truth, he is the life. The third and final statement that Jesus makes is that he is the life. He declares that he is also the only and exclusive way to God because in him alone is life. There is no other way to experience life outside of Jesus Christ. So throughout John's gospel, the concept of life or eternal life is specifically related to relationship with God, right? It isn't just talking about biological life or, or physical life. When you see eternal life in the, in the gospel of John or when Jesus stands and he says, I am the life, he's not specifically or only merely speaking about biological life and he's not merely speaking of life that doesn't end. He's talking about participation with an experience of God's life. The thing that makes God alive, which is his character, his nature, his own essence. He has life in himself. And to John, eternal life is the scandalous reality that you and I, because of Jesus, if we put our faith in him, get to experience that life. That is what he's saying. So it's a concept of being truly alive in the manner of existence and life that we were created for, meaning communion with God himself. This is what Jesus says in John 17. This is eternal life, that they know you. Did you catch that? What is eternal life? Is it to breathe forever? No. You're going to. If you're in Christ, you will breathe forever, but that's not what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing God, knowing God and knowing Jesus who he sent. He says, knowing God and knowing me, that is eternal life, communion with God, fellowship with God, experiencing God's triune life as we're welcomed into relationship with him. That is eternal life. In Jesus, this is found. And he, again, exclusively, solely orients it to himself. 
He doesn't say, hey, you can experience life somewhere else. Go and run after all of that experience outside of me. He orients it and says, if you want to have life, the thing you were created for, the thing that you know in the depths of your soul that you long for and ache for, that thing is only found in Christ Jesus. That's what he's saying. All of God's life, the thing you were made for, Jesus says, it's found in me. It's found in me and me alone. To experience the life of Christ is to be brought into union with him by the spirit made alive to his purposes. It now means that we can freely receive from him, be transformed by his power into greater experiences of his life in ours. That is the the privilege that he's welcoming them into. So Jesus, in this moment, Thomas raises his hand and he goes, hey, we're, we're, we're still not sure where you're going. We don't know where you're going and we don't know the way to get there. And Jesus takes them and he reorients and he says, hey, people who follow me, I am the way. So this morning, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in Jesus as your only righteousness, as the way to God the Father? Do you have other ways that you think you're trying to gain access to God, that you're trying to put on a facade for him, or you're trying to clean yourself up for him. Jesus says to you this morning, he alone is the way. Are you trusting in him? Jesus this morning says to you, he is the truth. Are you asking God to move things around and bend his truth so that it meets your experience or your preference or your desires? Are you wanting to know what God is like and what the Father is like? Jesus declares to you this morning that he is the truth. Are you trusting in him? Are you believing in him? Are you coming to him and saying, all that you are is true. Would you take me and conform me to that truth? Jesus invites you this morning that he is the life. He is the life. Are you this morning trying to find life in other places? Trying to find wholeness, fulfillment, satisfaction, purpose, meaning in somewhere outside of the man Jesus Christ? He would stand before you this morning and confront that and say, there is no way to experience life except in him and him alone. Are you trusting in him? Are you putting your faith in him? Jesus's question would ring to you today. His statement would be an invitation to you today. And even as we turn to the table and we come to celebrate the way that Jesus laid his life down to make a way for us, to show us the truth of God and to provide his life where we deserve death. The question for us this morning is, are we trusting in him? Are we trusting in him? Are we looking to him? Are we coming to him and to him alone in the midst of this world? And if you are, you are a Christian. 
And I want to invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we take communion at Redeemer Fellowship is you take a piece of the bread off, you tear it off, and you dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware. We have juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up here in the front, in the middle, and in the balcony. We have a gluten-free station to my right, to your left. If you're in the room this morning and you hear that statement of Jesus and that is not your your, your, your claim in this life. You don't put your trust in him. You don't bank your life in the fact that he is the way, truth, and life. We want to ask that you not come and take this meal with us. This meal is a remembrance meal of the reality that it's Jesus's death, his broken body, his shed blood, through which we can experience Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. So this meal wouldn't do anything for you. This meal is not the way. This meal doesn't give you life. This meal is not the truth. Jesus is. We want to ask that you would put your faith in him this morning. If you are putting your faith in him, come and take this with us. I'm going to pray for us. The servers are going to come forward and we'll receive together. Jesus, we honor you. We thank you that you are the way, that you are the truth, that you are the life. God, we declare that there is no other way to come to the Father, to experience life in God, to see God other than through you. We just declare our own need this morning. God, we we receive the truth of your word afresh. God, even as we come to the table, as we remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I ask that you would come and nourish us yourself by your spirit. Would you open our eyes? Would you soften our hearts? Would you stabilize us, strengthen us, and root us in your truth? We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.